Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here. Horace joins me this week to discuss investment cycles for new transport innovations. We look back at the technological developments from the past, such as cars, canals, and trains, and try and understand what we can learn from them as we head into the trough of disillusionment for micromobility, especially in the shared space. It is a great discussion. Before we do that, however, I want to give a shout out to the Micromobility America Summit, which is coming up April 22nd, 23rd in Richmond in the Bay Area. It'll be an amazing time. We're expecting over a thousand people there with amazing speakers talking about the best new ideas in the industry. I will be emceeing and Horace will be keynoting. It will be a blast and we would love to meet you. Head over to micromobility.io to get tickets. And in the meantime, here's Horace. All right, welcome back to Micromobility. Horace, where are you today? I am in San Francisco. I escaped from Boston where I was over the holidays, which is my home, but it's also cold and, and dark. And it's nice to be in a slightly warmer place. It's only it's only here in Celsius, 12 degrees, by the way. It's not that that warm. But I hear you, you where you are. Are you in, the, in, in New Zealand now? It's It must be are you are you roasting there? Is that, how much are you affected by the Australian uh, disaster? So that's actually a really good question. It's totally fine here. Our summer is beautiful. It's normal. But every so often, we're getting very heavy smoke loads. So the other day, I was up in Auckland, and the entire sky, like it was three, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, it went almost completely dark. And it was just a lot of the smoke that was coming over. That's amazing. How far are you? Isn't it hundreds of miles? It's, it's, it's over 1,000 miles. It's over a thousand miles away, and yet you, you know you're getting your 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 entire sky clouded over. That's that's shocking. Yeah, the entirety of the country was like that. It was crazy. It was a uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the Aussies the Aussies are certainly feeling it. If anybody doesn't have any context on this, the Australian fires are about I think thirty to thirty five times bigger than the the California wildfires of twenty nineteen. I mean, they're, they're just preposterously big. It's it's the size of the Netherlands at this stage. So yeah, certainly feeling for the Aussies. <laughs> but um, hey, look, I wanted to, to chat through today the investment sentiment and where we're at with capital formation. I've, we've had a couple of VCs on the podcast and I'm just curious what you're seeing and the conversations that you've been having, Horace, with those who are around the industry and how, and how that's working. And I want to put it also as well, just to help frame up the discussion, in the context of how do changes in modal shift around transport get funded in the past. And I want to go back into to looking at, you know, how did the car industry get funded and how did the trains get funded and how did canals get funded and what can we learn from those about how we're thinking about what happens with scooters and, and the micromobility industry? Well, that's a great question. So the way I would have answered it without the historical pretext would have been saying that we are in the trough of disillusionment. Now, this term has sort of been coined by Gartner, which are these analysts that were or are still are associated with tech analysis, market analysis, not not equities or, or shares 
or stock market analysis, but they, they tend to you know follow Microsoft and the PC market, for example. And Gartner came up with this idea where, where they said, if you look at a new technology, typically nowadays we're in the middle of CES today, CS is often running uh, over in Las Vegas. Typically, every year you get these new products, new ideas being the buzz of the show. You, you know, years past, we had drones and AI-driven assistants and so on. Who knows what the buzz is this year? But the thing is, if you follow one of these ideas, and if, if it's an idea or a technology that goes from zero to hero, meaning it goes from no users to everybody using it, it follows an S-curve. It follows like, you know, the, the classic, you know, these are very early adopters, sometimes also called innovators. Then you have early adopters, then you have early majority, late majority, and then laggards. And each of these is roughly, they're not equal numbers, but they're like 2% are innovators in the next 13 and next 13 and so on. So the percentages are somewhat arbitrary, but the, the point is that you, you kind of have a predictability to this curve of adoption. In contrast to that, there's a different curve that shows capital. In other words, you would say, well, if users are going up in the Nest curve, wouldn't capital kind of maybe go up in the Nest curve, but be offset, let's say, the same way, and you'd have early investors, middle investors, and late investors, and then somehow they too would pile in in an S-curve fashion. What Gartner observed, and I don't know if anyone else has followed this and been more quantitative about it, but the way that what Gartner observed is by using something called the hype cycle. So the hype cycle is a curve that isn't an S-curve, but rather it looks like an exponential curve. So it's going you know, very quickly, very fast up, and then it's sort of peaks quickly and then drops suddenly just as quickly as it rose. And then it starts rising again slowly in more or less an S-curve fashion. So you sort of have this wobble in the beginning and then a, a more gradual tapered increase. And this also is segmented into periods. So you have the early boom at times, the, the sort of the hype period. Then you have what they call the trough of disillusionment, which is when the hype peaks and then there's a collapse in, in sentiment. There's a collapse in enthusiasm. There's a collapse in, in capital, obviously. And then it rises again and it reaches something called the plateau of productivity, which is when the products and services get used. And indeed, that's when adoption happens. So this Gartner hype curve occurs pretty much like even before adoption reaches the early adopter phase. This is like in the zero to 2% stage of adoption. So it's very, very fast, it's very concentrated, and as a result, it's very volatile. And so when you track it, now the question is how, how much time is there between, let's say, hype, trough, and productivity versus the adoption curve, which might exist for consumers or for businesses who are buyers? That is the question. How fast do things go straight up straight down, and then gradually back up again. The thing about micromobility is that we, we experienced this hype in like two years. Probably now we're in the trough, and then we're going to have the plateau productivity in another two, three years maybe from now. Now, if you did this same analysis, and as you asked about previous periods in time, if you did this for the personal computer, if you did this for the phone, or any of the things that are CES today, or where, where in the distant past, like the 1990s, you would see longer terms, 
longer periods of buildup of hype, collapse, and then productivity curve. And so the question for micro is mostly like how fast do these things take? And and the problem with also with the Gartner curve is that's not very, it's certainly not as analyzed as the S-curve. Because for the S-curve, you measure things like how many people out of a population are using it. And you can survey them or you can observe them. But when it comes to investment and hype, and in this itself, I'm using air quotes here, think about hype. How do you measure it? You you go on Google Trends and see how many times people mention it, but that would be maybe the mainstream press, or maybe do you go on social media and look for hashtags, or do you go on these sites that track investments and try to parse whether an investment in, is in this category versus something else? So it's not so easy to measure the hype curve and its intensity. It's more or less a feeling right now where you know this is a, a measurement of sentiment. So so that's one of the uh, ways I would answer. Now, to the, the second part of your question about what is the history of investments and did we go through this before? Now, obviously, I mentioned a few technologies. You know, We had a hype curve and an adoption curve for mp3 players i don't know if you remember back the ipod you know when the ipod came out already there were several years before then that we had mp3 players and then then many years after that we had sort of like companies that were trying to beat apple at the game the zune which probably would have been in the late stage where it was competing with not just the the, the hardware but the service itself of iTunes. So, But if you go back and ask, what was it like in the late 90s? And remember, the iPod began in 2001, and it didn't really get traction until about 2004. And it was like all the rage by 2005, 2006. And by 2007, the iPhone came, so it was already a moot thing. But that was its run. It was like 2001 to 2007. But if you look before 2001, well, you know, the Rio something or other, I forgot the, the, these companies even, but there were MP3 players as early as probably 1997. These were the Flash-based, you know, Apple was the first with a real hard drive in it. And so the, sort of this portable storage powered by a battery, this was a, a late 90s phenomenon. And so that hype curve would have probably burned itself out even by the time Apple joined it, which is interesting because if you think about the adoption of MP3 players, it didn't really take off until the iPod took off. So as far as consumers were concerned, the takeoff happened 2002 three. Something like that, three, four, maybe. The people who see the future, and this is the critical point, the people who go up and down that curve are the people who anticipated, but probably a bit too early, and who are therefore very susceptible to kind of being pioneers with arrows in their back. So in that sense, it's a curse. It's a curse being able to anticipate things because you tend to rush into it and think that this is the future. I've, I've seen it. It's absolutely correct. And you want to do it. You put your heart and soul into it. And yet, and yet you're too early and you realize that not everybody's following, jumping into this thing as quickly as you are. And as a result, you sort of like, hey, where is everybody? So let's step back again, even before 1998, okay, before the iPod era, although we can talk about the PC era, same thing. In the PC era, there was 1970s where it all began. It wasn't even before, it was before Windows, it was before DOS, it was before even the, the Macintosh, obviously, that was the Apple II. But even the, before the Apple II, there were many, many microcomputer companies because they were all enabled by the in, initial Intel microprocessor, the 8008, which was a 4-bit processor, and then there was the 8086, which, 8086, which was the first 8-bit, or I, I, I don't remember, I may have it all wrong, but anyway, this was like late 70s when microprocessors were first put forward and you could build a computer around this one chip. And that too created a vast 
expansion in, in interest, in investment, in hype. Magazines, Byte magazine, if anybody remembers, were just these were, were the seminal period of the microcomputer. In fact, Apple kind of, you know, Steve Jobs, I should say, Steve Jobs and, and Woz together, they were like, they got swept up in this. And so was Microsoft. Like around 1976 is when both of those companies began. They're about the same age. And so that was that was at that moment of like everybody who was into computers, that is, you know, the homebrew computer club, that was the moment of maximum excitement way before even IBM. IBM PC came out in 1981. And so it was already five years later than what Apple did. Many, many were of these people were hobbyists. And, and yes, there was capital flowing. And I mean, that's what funded Apple initially was, in, you know, was some early venture capital, some early seed capital. And of course, before that, I could go on and on. I mean, the mini computer stage, you know, the formulation of Digital Equipment Corporation or DEC also attracted capital. In fact, DEC has the distinction of being one of the very first companies to be funded by venture capital. Right. And that had come out of what? The folks coming out of Fairchild? Is that correct? No, that was on the more in the semiconductor side. Digital equipment started in Boston area and it was a few engineers actually who went to, at the time, VCs were actually mostly East Coast based. And so because they were coming, came out of academia, they came out of academic institutions like MIT, Harvard, Yale, that have endowments. These endowments were given a little bit more freedom to invest than, than typical hedge funds or investment funds. They were typically, this is what we're talking 60s and 70s, those initial academic endowments said, you are allowed to invest in IP that's sourced from university itself. So if you have a professor that comes around and says, I have a great idea, I have a great company I want to build, you are allowed to invest in them because no one else would. And so they had access to these brilliant people coming out of the university. So the top, the top thinkers there were pitching effectively their own university for funds. And so when that instrument, that you know, construction or construct of a, a venture fund came out of this academic endowment foundation that was primarily East Coast, although Stanford certainly pioneered a lot of that as well. But it was it was maybe one university in the on the West Coast, but there were several on the East Coast. So the point is that's where it all began. And so now if you ask the question, well what, how would you fund a great idea before 1960 or so, before we had the venture venture capital itself? So how was the auto industry funded? How was the transportation network of rail, which by the way, huge, huge investment required, and preceding that, the canal systems. Well, if you go back and you hit, you, you know, you research this a little bit, you'll see that there were these waves of exactly like Gartner this says there was a railroad bubble, there was a canal bubble, and a South Asia bubble. I forget exactly. This was mostly to do with investments around trade to Asia and probably many others besides the ones that you know of, the sort of the gold rush and other things. But there were these transportation bubbles. And the reason was that at that time, you could raise money for, let's say, building a railroad from London to Manchester. You could raise it by going to wealthy individuals in the city of London and selling them a bond. So the idea was that you, you wouldn't even sell equity, you would sell debt. And you'd say, because we're building infrastructure, infrastructure pays back wonderfully. Like, you know, we charge for the service. It's very predictable cash flows. There isn't a lot of technology risk. It's just that we got to build it and then 
and then we just got to collect money. So it looked like a winner. Like as soon as you know, I give you this loan and you pay me back like forever in a huge amount uh, multiple times over. So the principal idea was that if you look at the history, you know, first, I'm sure the first person to build a railroad said, hey, we're going to charge tickets for this. And, 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 you know, and they knew how that worked from toll roads. They knew how that worked from charging tolls on rivers and canals as well. And so it was a predictable logic to the economics of it. The answer is that there wasn't an instrument of venture capital, but there were rich, rich people who wanted to allocate capital, who would, would invest based on predictable cash flows. And now if you ask, how did Henry Ford get started? It's again, knowing a few rich people who funded him. How did Thomas Edison get started? Same way. He actually mostly got funded by having the General Electric, by the way, was formed by him as a co-founder with JP Morgan. And Morgan was one of these very wealthy individuals who financed these types of projects to say, oh, you've, you've got new technology generating electricity, distributing electricity, consuming electricity. Okay, let's build a company around it and, and you'll be co-founding it. But it was, it was essentially one-to-one relationship between the investors. So there were these were, today these would be called the limited partners. So these are the people who put money into a fund and the general partners are the ones who distribute it. In the old days, you just didn't have GPs. Everybody was an LP. You just had to go direct to the source of capital, convince them. So you're pitching essentially people who actually have the money as opposed to people who are hired to, this, to, to, to assess the opportunity. So the invention of venture capital per se is that there were people who said we are experts at identifying opportunity and thus we should, you should trust us as money managers to invest wisely. You can go back, you know, not just to the 19th century or 18th century, you can go back forever. And there always were wealthy people said, okay, I'll get behind a new project, no matter what it was. I mean, you want to go invade another country, you probably needed financing. So kings sought money from bankers and others who said, okay, what's in it for us? Uh, The weird thing about this conversation to me, and just thinking about it a little bit meta is here, that this isn't taught, that we don't get to have education about finance, historical finance, or or how economics has influenced history. And a, a lot of the, the hit, I'll give you another example. And so I know this is a bit off the topic, but like, if you look at the, the American Revolution, a lot of it was economic. I mean, the, the reason the Americans even won was probably because the British had trouble back at home with their economics. In fact, there was a big depression right after the American Revolution because the crown didn't have any money. And a lot of the fighting was itself about money because they were taxing the colonists for wars that were fought before then, which was with the French Indian Wars, which was bankrupting Britain. And Britain wanted to tax everything in order to get money back and and so on and so on it goes but uh, my point is that yeah finance is underneath all of this whether it's historic conflicts to infrastructures that we take for granted infrastructures that no longer exist and you know companies like shipping companies and the famous english and dutch east india empires i mean these were companies that had, that had monopolies for trade and as a result, they were so big and powerful, they could raise their own armies. And they did raise their own armies and essentially act as imperial powers, even though they were private entities, which, you know, were, were capitalized by, by interests back home. Even the American flag is basically a copy of a trading 
the, the emblem of the British East India Company. Going into this, because this is fascinating, by the way, I love this. I feel like there's a, a distinction between financing for something like building of a railroad versus the financing of something like the vehicle itself. And so if we look at, for example, the early funding of the automobile, there was obviously, as you say, Henry Ford had a couple of very wealthy backers who came along and provided that early financing to him. But then there was subsequently the emergence of the credit markets, which, as I understand, was an innovation that was put behind GM and why GM had, you know, initially done very well. So there's a there's a sort of there's financing around the manufacturing and then there's financing around the adoption. Curious for you about where we're at with both of those, as you can see it so far. Right. So, so just to also build on that a little bit, it's not just the financing needed to manufacture, which required, again, very high capital intensity for the factories that Ford and GM put together. But you're right, as far as financing, the demand for the product and that GM with the auto loans, I mean, who would have thought I mean, you, today, you, you always, almost always, if you buy a new car, you get a loan for it. But who would have backed the idea that you can get a loan to buy this jalopy, this very poorly built, rickety, highly depreciating asset? And yet that had to happen. It, it took a long time. It had to happen. The other thing that had to also happen was that the whole dealership network had to be built. Because if you got this fire hose pumping out millions of cars a year, you're not selling them direct to consumers. You've got to have this outpouring of product pulled up in, in, in reservoirs which would then be drained by the consumer. But these reservoirs were the dealers. If it wasn't for the dealers, the factory could not operate in its smooth, continuous fashion. You know, demand might be very seasonal. Demand may also be cyclical due to economy, up and down and so on. For that reason, the inventory capture that, that dealers had. Now, who financed dealers? This is another good question. How did the dealer network? Nobody talks about this because it's it's a kind of this middle middle stuff, this middlemen we call them, and with disdain. But the fact is that they're very crucial to the mass distribution of of something. So this is only as a, as a history lesson. But you have to appreciate that an industry isn't built only on the solution of the end user's need. It's much more about being able to produce economically efficiently and profitably and distribute both economically and profitably so that you can connect the network together from the sourcing all the way to the end user and even the recycling and the disposal of the product at the end. So this whole value chain, as we call it, right, is something that needs to be nurtured. If one piece breaks in that chain, the whole system breaks down. So this is why, and it has to be built, and this is why it's important to understand the, the notion of modularity versus integration, because if these things didn't develop altogether, then the whole system breaks down as well. Remember, taking one piece out of the chain breaks it, but if you don't have the chain to begin with because a link hasn't been built, then it also doesn't work. So how do we build the whole linkage here? And then the, what happens with the pioneers is typically they built everything themselves, although not as well as could be done if they harnessed other people to do their, you know, the subparts. This is why even when we look at micro today, we have somebody who typically builds the hardware and somebody else who typically deploys it and manage. In fact, the charging itself, right? And if we look at the, the canonical bird or line scooter fleet, that is highly modular where the manufacturing is done by one company, the distribution, I mean, essentially deployment and maintenance is done by the operator. But then we actually, they outsource 
the charging and the and, the, and the increasingly outsource the maintenance. And that means there's got to be this network, like dealer network we have is like these people who are juicers who go out and do the, the heavy lifting for the fleet. And so to what degree do you need to solve these problems and to innovate along these these problems in order to solve the out, the final solution, which is delivering miles and smiles? What happens with early players like Ford is like, Ford integrated everything all the way from sourcing the wood by owning the forest where the wood is, is grown to owning the mines. Was it wood? I, I was under the impression it was the rubber, they used to own rubber plantation. Both. He needed to source wood for a lot of the parts. He needed to source metal. He needed to source. It's a funny story. The charcoal Kingsford is a brand of charcoal in the United States. It used to be called Ford Kingsford. King's Ford, the Ford part of that was Ford because he had surplus charcoal from his wood production and he sold it as something for barbecues. Anyway, long long story, there was there was a very, very deeply integrated value chain and it's almost become axiomatic that Ford kind of developed the integration of a vertical integration. But in fact, no, he just implemented what what was natural to do so at that time in order to deliver on the premise of a car for $300 or a car for the people. And so it was copied afterwards and it was existed before then. But the thing that typically happens early on is that you do integration and solve the problem. And then over time, that breaks down into saying, okay, listen, I'm not going to handle every aspect. I think you can do this better. So you start to outsource, you know, you, you, you carve out something and you say, you do it and we'll be partners in this. Even the, the scooter business may have started a bit too modular and needs to integrate a bit more in order to deliver on the promise so that to the extent that charging is done outside, maybe it should be done inside. This is a debate that happens all the time. Where do you divide? Where are the boundaries in this? And part of that is also is like, can the group that I'm working with as a partner get financing? Can that group that I rely on, let's say in manufacturing, what if they fall down and they cannot execute? What if they execute too slowly, which is even as bad? So to some extent, we see some micromobility companies vertically integrate more and more, actually. So if you look at the scooter business, the early movers were like, we'll just pick up off the shelf scooters from Xiaomi or from Okai or uh, Segway. Yeah, so you, you pick up these things off the shelf, but those are consumer products that will work for you for a couple of months, but then you, you say, oh, we need much more robust. So you become more vertically integrated by getting involved in the design stage. Perhaps later on, you even get involved in the R&D phase and in the manufacturing. I'll give you one more example, Peloton. You know, this is a company, it's not, it's not a mobility company, but it is- It's an immobility company. <laughs> Yeah, it's a stationary company. What they had to do also is they they served up a stationary bike. They served content. The content is what comes through the screen. And then uh, they, they had apparel and other things. And they had they decided of all those things that they had to own what? The store. That means they had to own distribution. And they also had to own the content. And that's IP. They chose not to initially own the manufacturing of the bikes or the, the, the equipment itself. But now they bought the company that makes the bikes and they decided that they got to be, first of all, eliminating that potential liability or risk that might occur if that company were to disappear or if they got acquired by somebody else who was a competitor and so on and so on. So even the Peloton vertically integrates as it moves forward, as opposed to 
becoming more modular, more outsourcing as it goes forward. So this movement from integration to modularity, this oscillation, is something that, that business theorists have been thinking a long time. Is the road always in one direction? Is it always from integrated to modular as Ford versus GM versus Toyota versus the present, which is like the auto industry is highly modular, so modular, I can't even describe it, how many hundreds of companies are involved in the making of a car. They even have to put them in tiers. That's why you have tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. These are tiers of suppliers. And so that's how that industry went over a century. At the same time, you have companies like Apple that vertically integrated the personal computer and thus creating great experiences on a laptop, on a mobile device that nobody else could do because they had already modularized as Dell did, as HP did. And as Microsoft itself was a component and needed to integrate in order to make the Surface product, and as Google had to do in order to make the Pixel product. You have this oscillation that goes, say, we start modular, we become integrated, or we start integrated, we become modular, and maybe back and forth a couple of times, which is like changing your DNA. These are not things that are easy to do. If your investors, and back to the investment theme, if your investors tell you, here's $10 million dollars, I want you to go out there and build a service network for scooters. I want you to deploy in, let's say, a market that's underdeveloped, let's say South America. Here's $10 million, go do it. And you come back six months later and say, you know what? I'd love to do this. We're doing great. We opened Colombia and we're going to go into Peru or whatnot. And then you come back. But you know, the scooters that we're sourcing are not good enough. So we want to go into making our own scooters for the South American market. Let's assume that that was a need. Well, the investor then has to say, wait a minute, you know, I gave you $10 million to go do this. You told me you can do this. And now you're asking for like, what, another $10 million to make your own scooter. It's not what I'm hiring you to do. Besides, your expertise is in is in operations. It's not in R&D. You're not a mechanical engineer. Why would, would I believe that you can make a scooter? So this is the fundamental problem we have with entrepreneurs. And by the way, Tesla is an example of this because Tesla's Elon Musk says, I'm going to do everything. And initially, it would have been impossible to pitch the original investors to Tesla and the original entrepreneurs behind Tesla, who actually formed that company, didn't go around saying, we're going to make our own batteries or we're going to even make our own. They just said, we're just going to integrate stuff that already exists and use use essentially an architecture for a personal computer to make a car, which is an interesting idea. But if they had tried to pitch back then in 2004, by the way, which is when all this began to pitch that they're going to make not just their own factories, but their own battery factories, that they're going to eventually source solar panels, not to mention the charging network. It's incredible what is going on there in terms of integration, where you know, while the industry, as I said, the auto industry is highly modular, Tesla said, we're going to go in the opposite direction. We're going to vertically integrate. And now the industry is still saying, hang on, we can do electric cars in a modular fashion thank you very much. And they're ignoring the Tesla strategy and just going ahead and we're, you know, we're just going to switch over our factories and then nothing's going to change when we go electric. I'm personally on the side that says that auto market does not need as much integration as Tesla is suggesting, but, but I could be wrong. I mean, well, I certainly needed it to be able to prove up the use case because they haven't been able to build. I mean, you look at EV1 and the others, those are terrible cars. And, and I guess in some ways, what you can show when you do integration is that you can show how it works, right? It's about timing is exactly right. I mean, the Tesla was a catalyst that said, hey, stop 
fanning about, get on with it, and here's how. And sort of getting it started and getting the consumers to to say through their wallets, pay through their paying for the car, to say, hey, there's demand. People are willing to spend a lot of money for an electric car and stop doing all this spreadsheet nonsense to try to justify it. Just get on with it. And that's what that certainly is what Tesla did. The leap of faith there is to suggest that they're going to be the largest car maker in the world is, a, is, another, is another bet. I have a theory that Elon's actually just deploying this money and thinking of it as a nonprofit. And if you think about, you know, like how you could spend $20 billion to try and accelerate the move towards electric cars, you could try and spend it in terms of, I don't know, lobbying the government to do some subsidy program or something. Or you could just go burn a bunch of money, (laughs) build an unprofitable car maker and force everybody else to compete against you, which in some ways is a very smart idea. You know, in many ways, I, th- I you know, I, I don't want to jump to too many assumptions or multiply too many assumptions, but indeed, that's what's happened is to the extent that they've burned $20 billion of wealthy people's money. And some of it is their own customers' money, obviously, but the investors right now are loving it. So bless them, I say. But the point I'm making about micro, though, is that let's not get either disillusioned or overhyped and understand that, you know, I wish we could jump straight to the to the curve of, you know, as I said, to the plateau of productivity. I wish we didn't have to have the overhype and the, and the trough, but we tend to do that. And why these two curves are different, this is how we began. Why is it that the hype curve does not look like the adoption curve? The adoption curve is predictable, and I would argue inevitable, right? That we're going to get up that curve and we're going to see a significant portion of the world's transportation be delivered via vehicles that are sized according to their payload as opposed to sized according to every trip that it will ever happen. That's the premise. That's the thesis of micromobilities. The vehicle and the service is tuned to the job to be done, which is moving a person or moving a package if, if you want to deal with goods. You don't have to you know, have a five-ton vehicle to deliver a parcel from Amazon which only weighs a f- a one kilogram, nor do you need a 3,000 kilogram vehicle to deliver a 100 kilogram passenger. So the point is that we need to downsize these vehicles. And, and yes, we can say that with certainty it's going to happen. It just makes too much sense. The problem is that to get to that moment of adoption, we go through this like some people get it, some people don't, some people I get super excited and some people are like absolute naysayers. And so when that argument and that battle takes place, you end up with this highly volatile situation where sentiment just goes out of control in too many directions at once. And so you get this battle royale over how to allocate capital. That is why you end up with a very different response function, right? If you think about it sort of like engineering or mathematically, it's like you have something that prods you like, you know, like a pinprick and your response mechanism is to jump up and down, you know. It's not necessarily all that important in the long term when my analogy is rather bad here, but you're sort of getting to someone to move forward. You could push them gently and apply force gradually, or you could poke them with a stick or poke them with a needle, and then the response is completely different. You eventually get the person moving, but getting them moving with a needle is a lot different. And this is in many ways what's happening with a lot of technologies is that we cannot apply broad pressure. Capital doesn't work that way. Capital is always pinpricks. And so it's always going to look and feel different, both from the point of view of the entrepreneur, but also from the point of view of the capitalist, because let's not forget that maybe 100% of that capital in the early phases is unrewarded. It's all wasted. 
we end up with a lot of a lot of victims, not just on the entrepreneur side, we get a lot of victims on the on the side of the capital. I mean, just go and read the history of, of again, the railroads, the canals, the cars, and you realize there were 3,000 car companies at the turn of the century from 1800 to 1900. 3,000 car companies, they all lost money. And every investor, every one of those had to have had an investor behind it. Not just an entrepreneur who probably also lost everything, but a lot of people who backed him or her. Well, most, mostly it was him back then. So the point is that yeah, it's painful. Yeah, a lot of victims occur, but that's humanity is all about. Listen, you will always have leaders who are going to risk everything and go out and do it, even if they know the odds are infinitesimally small that they'll succeed. They'll do it anyway. They have an urge, they have an innate, desperate need to do it. That is, some people do, a very small group of people do, and most don't. But that's the point is that no matter what the opportunity out there, there'll always be someone who will run after it. The system is set up that way, and it's always been that way. I mean, maybe sometimes it was slow and inefficient. Other times it's maybe too efficient and you end up with billionaires too quickly. But nonetheless, that's how it's always been. So my point is now, if you do feel that micro is is somehow feels depressing that, you know, a lot of, especially now in the winter, right? Because the usage is always low in the winter. And that a lot of pioneers are actually hitting a wall, and it wouldn't be the first. I mean, certainly the economics for the original Chinese bike share were were horrible, and they're mostly gone. But let's not. And actually, this would be an interesting study. Speaking of hype curve versus adoption, we tend to forget in China today. If you go and look, whatever happened to Ofo and Mobike? Well, actually, Mobike was acquired by. Make one, and and Ofo was acquired partially, if not wholly, by Didi, and Didi decided to reboot the business and go into e-bikes, and they invested hundreds of millions in doing so. So, in many ways, we don't hear what the adoption rate is in, in China. Maybe they kind of got embarrassed by the fact that it didn't work out as well as they thought, but that doesn't mean that there are no people riding bikes. Assured bikes in China. We just don't hear about it because we're not reading a Chinese news, and even Chinese news is not being printed on this on this subject as it used to be. But this is again in China. Uh, my bet is that they're going up the the slope of productivity, going to a plateau there. Well, I think as well a lot of the early challenges with that bike share are the same things that were faced elsewhere, which has been they had uncapped deployments. So there was just giant piles of bikes, etc., which eventually turned around. And then what you ended up with is the move towards cities actually saying, no, you're only going to have this number of bikes, and but they can be deployed in these areas. And because they recognize the value and then, you know, infrastructure was already there. So it was able to be deployed and it was able to be absorbed into the urban fabric. I guess that there's a question that I have here as well, which is as we look at this hype, so you have hype and we're talking in some ways around the vehicles and the operations and services, et cetera. But one of the other things that I've been thinking about a lot is that infrastructure question, because you look back and you think there was the vehicle construction. And then in addition to this whole auto sector or the rail sector, there was a whole heap of infrastructure that was built. And oftentimes it was, it came, the rail, at least as far as I understood, was actually privately funded, but then the roading infrastructure was largely publicly funded and I can see that we're in that same phase again where you want to have some road space allocation set aside to these micromobility devices in the form of you know scooters and bikes etc and that that's a public funding question that has to be matched with private funding for the vehicles and the vehicle adoption and that's the part that I'm trying to work out if there's any parallels where 
private capital could be coming in and saying we want to accelerate adoption or we want to change their how that works because at the end of the day right this is like public democracy this is how how this stuff gets deployed yes but here's the thing i'd like to point out historically that in comparison to every other infrastructure in history micro is much much cheaper in fact it's cost saving to deploy and implement if you go back and ask the question what would it cost today and this is actually an issue for public transit today, what would it cost to build a rail line? What would it cost to build a subway? What would it cost to build a canal network? Holy cow, you cannot imagine doing so. Now, China is doing it and has been doing it for 20 years, and they'll do it as long as they can. But I would bet you in 50 years, 60, 100 years from now, China will say no to any new infrastructure because the population generations later will change and people will be like, uh uh-uh, no more of that. This is some something of a, or the, you know, maybe it's a mystery, but let me point out a couple of things. To build a railroad, to build a city, to build a road network, to build a canal network, you need what's called eminent domain, which means that the builder has to have access to the land and they have to say, I'm going to turn this piece of land, this strip of land right here going for hundreds of kilometers, I'm going to convert that to a railroad. And that's going to cut all through these farms. It's going to cut through these valleys, through these mountains. And whoever owns those has to sell me the right to build this. So eminent domain was a construct that said it is in the interest of society that this this thing be built, whether privately or publicly, but you cannot prevent it even though you are the rightful owner of the land, even though you, you, you may think that, hey, I don't want this railroad through my backyard. You get it anyway, and you're told so. In fact, in China, they've been doing this to the chagrin of a lot of people who said, you know, I don't want a roadway or a new construction. I have this beautiful small house in rural environment and all this stuff. Doesn't matter. In China, they built a Three Gorges Dam and and submerged hundreds and hundreds of communities, right? And this happened just like 15 years ago. The idea of building infrastructure, there was a time in the West when either because we had a different economics, different governments. Oh, it was considered to be pioneering. And so I think there was a willingness within the political system to be able to say, yeah, we can do this. So you have to ask yourself, well, what was it that was different then versus now? And even so, even now, when you ask, what are we really demanding for micro is not that we need to build three more lanes to a highway, but rather that we take one lane away that is currently three and we'll dedicate it to this new resource. Every piece of infrastructure needed for cycling or micro, it one-tenth of the cost of the automobile. So here's what we're asking. We're asking to lower pollution in cities. We're asking to increase the amount of space that is for people versus cars. We're asking for a quieter place. We're asking for all these things which improve quality of life that every citizen adores. And by the way, eventually we're asking to make a lot more money for everyone, especially because as building these super highways of cycling, it increases the, the foot traffic to retail. And so it makes the neighborhood better. And everything that's being asked for in micro is a net positive. And I heard this told by, by city planners, if there was one thing that is a miracle 
solution for the world's cities, it is to switch away from automobiles into micro. For the cities, for sure. And I, I guess there's a little bit more nuance in there as well, which is we're not only asking for, for a lane on the road, we're also asking that there is infill and rezoning of all of these different, of the built environment that we already have at the moment, right? Yes, you end up with a lot of what are called unintended consequences, but usually unintended consequences are considered negative, but the unintended consequences are positive for micro. Better health, lower costs for healthcare, lower pollution, etc. I will say clearly that there's a there's another side to this to this argument, but the other side is tends to be like let's not rock the boat, you know, I'm worried about accessibility, I'm worried about suburban lifestyle being being compromised. I also live in Boston and I'll tell you something. The traffic there and I've said this before, but it boggles my mind because I've actually I don't stay there a lot. And I've visited with people and I'm told by people within what's called the 128, which is the first belt road of, of Boston, people within, within that first belt road, which is in the Boston itself, it includes the first suburbs. They're saying things like our economic prosperity is now being degraded because of the traffic. We're looking at average speeds in the suburbs below 10 miles an hour. This is because, you know, Boston itself has just gotten so bad, but now it's spreading. The cancer is spreading out and it's causing people to wonder if their kids are going to be able to get jobs. Because they can't get to the particular areas in an efficient and a, yeah, yeah, I, I get you. It's a complete paralysis. I, I know parts of Boston that the, the traffic jams used to be during the rush hour. Other traffic jams are like almost all day except, you know, maybe late at night. It's continuous. And it, it's shocking how that really affects you psychologically. And what we're asking, what would you say? And they're debating this right now in Boston. They're saying, what can we possibly do to solve our traffic problems? Very few people are putting forward the idea like, hey, why don't we just either implement new cost structures for cars, including congestion, but also, you know, how about not allowing SUVs everywhere, you know? And I know this goes, this is, such, this is like saying banning cigarettes in the 1950s, but I'm saying it anyway. We need to ban SUVs. We need to ban vehicles that are so ginormous, they don't actually fit in parking spots. We need to think about the size of the vehicle question, and we need to think about properly disincentivizing people from that. And then, of course, there's a lot of other things you can do on parking alone, changing the cost structure there adding tolls and other things. Yes, I agree. However, we're getting very far away from our initial talk about investment and we're running up against time. So I think maybe what we'll do is we'll, we'll cut this off here. Any final thoughts on this in terms of how to think about this or things that you wanted to say just before we finish? We should say that some of this discussion has taken place, especially with respect to investment theses on micromobility, has taken place in, in the MMM, the Micromobility Meetup group and the forum. And that is a place where you can join and, and we can have this conversation in a more interactive fashion. So we do Q&A. In some ways, I wish I could actually talk about that here as well, because we did we did talk about autonomy and, and its implications. We did talk about electric cars and its implications. So there's a lot more going on in conversations on the MMM forum, if you will. And secondly, I also want to make sure people do sign up for the Micromobility Conference, which is uh, another place where we can actually roll up our sleeves and discuss these matters face-to-face. It's happening in Richmond. Bay Area. Yeah, that's the 22nd, 23rd of April in the Bay Area. So come and join us. 
anybody who's anybody in Micro will be there. We're going to have two days this year. And so let's make sure we keep this conversation going and get the bandwidth necessary for it. Yes. All very good. Thanks. All right. Thanks very much, Horace. Really appreciate it.